A spoiled land, ruined crops, pestilent livestock, broken walls, corpses in the city streets. The future for those who turn their backs on God in the book of Deuteronomy is a bleak one. The success of the nation appears to depend on everyone towing the line. God expects nothing less than a community of believers who are prepared to set him centrally in their daily life, follow his laws and worship him. And this isn't any kind of loosey-goosey now and then worship. Worship in Israel is structured, measured and timed. Moses has already explained how God expects his people to behave once they have entered the land of Canaan, the land promised centuries earlier to their ancestor Abraham. Now he spells out the dark days that lie ahead should they stray from the path, sing to their own tune, or, worse still, find other gods who they would sooner worship. It makes for some of the bleakest reading in the whole Bible, but in Moses' view, for Israel to succeed as a nation, these words need to be heard. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, Episode 50, The Horror. Someone pop the champagne, 50 episodes. If you've been following the journey so far, grab your celebratory drink, food or other victual of choice and celebrate with me. I am actually opening a bottle of fizz right now. Here we go. Oh, which is hilariously out of kilter with the passage in Deuteronomy, which we are about to travel through. Just going to pour myself some quite thirsty work podcasting. But hey, we deserve to let our hair down. It's been quite a ride. In fact, we're only one episode away from completing the first five books of the Bible, the set known to the ancients as the Pentateuch, or the Jewish books of the law. We should really put our celebrations off until then, but 50 is such a good number. If this is your first ever stop at the Holy Bible podcast, we're not always on the fizz. However, this is the Bible minus the religious spin, a kind of secular walk through a sacred text. The thinking is that the Bible is for everyone, not just religious people. So, welcome aboard, whatever you believe. We're currently on the banks of the River Jordan at a camp known as Beth Peor. Here, Moses has been sharing Israel's laws with people who have spent the last 40 years wandering around the Sinai Desert, and who either weren't around when these laws were first shared, or who have forgotten them. OK, bottoms up. Let's get the bus in gear and head for the border. When it comes to unpacking what rebellion against God looks like, Moses doesn't pussyfoot around with niceties or euphemisms. His intention is to absolutely terrify the people into falling into line. His curses and woes are relentless, and anyone who decides to take God's laws with a pinch of salt is left in no doubt as to how things might pan out for them. They can expect to be cursed in the city and in the country, in their kitchen, in their children, crops and livestock, and in everything they do. And that's just for starters. 
Everything they turn their hand to will be spoiled. Ruin will come. Plague will come. The land will be destroyed. They will be struck with wasting diseases, fever, inflammation, scorching heat, blight and mildew until they die. In one of the longest diatribes in the Bible, Moses goes into intricate detail about the downfall of the disobedient. While their law-abiding cousins will thrive in their new land, their own sky will be as cruel as bronze, their earth as hard as iron, and dust will fall from the heavens instead of rain until they are completely destroyed. They will be defeated in battle. Their enemies will come at them and scatter them, and they will become an object of horror to any nation that attacks them. They will be massacred and their carcasses left as carrion for the birds. There will be no concerned passers-by to scare the vultures away from desecrating their corpses, Moses tells them. No one will care. According to this book, there is no escape from disobeying God. People who break his laws will be afflicted with boils, tumours, festering sores and something which Deuteronomy enigmatically calls the itch and which cannot be cured. They will become mad, blind and confused. Everything they try will fail. They will stumble around in broad daylight. They will be pushed about and robbed and no one will rescue them. Another man will not only steal the woman they are set to marry, he will rape her. The Israelites' homes will be destroyed before they can move in. Their vineyards will be flattened before they produce any wine, their oxen killed, their donkeys taken and their sheep given to their enemies. Their sons and daughters will be exiled and they will wear out their eyes waiting for them to return. A foreign nation will eat their crops. The things which they are forced to see will drive them insane and their knees and legs will become horribly infected with a disease that will spread across their entire body. God will then drive them and their godless king to an unknown nation where they will worship idols made of wood and stone. Here they will become a thing of horror and will be seen as a joke among the people of their new home. Locusts and worms will devour their crops and their olives will fall to the ground before they can be picked. Their children will be taken away as captives while the locusts eat what is left of their fields. Foreigners will rule over them, rising in power as their own power ebbs away and they become the tail rather than the head, a sorry shadow of the mighty nation which right now they hope one day to be. Moses is now in full flow as the litany of woes continues with further horrors that will befall Israel should they cease making God front and central to their lives. Moses explains that the Israelites will have brought all these disasters down on their own heads for failing to worship God appropriately. These curses will hunt them down and when they catch up with them they will destroy them, he says. Such will be their scale and atrocity that future generations will look back on them as a national calamity and will be reminded of what happened when people in a time of prosperity failed to experience joy and show God the gratitude due to him. Hungry and thirsty, naked and poor, they will serve any enemy who God sends to ruin them. 
This enemy will put an iron yoke on their neck. Not a device that is known to exist, but one which acts as a metaphor of how they will be pushed down and forced into strength-sapping slave labour. Worse still, this servitude will only end when they are utterly destroyed, Moses tells them. The Israelites' leader promises that God will send an army from a distant nation who will swoop down like an eagle on the chances who ignore his laws. These merciless foreigners will babble a language which his people will not comprehend. They will be fierce warriors with no respect for young or old and will cut down them, their livestock and their crops pitilessly. They will ruin Israel's fields, vineyards and olive groves and destroy their flocks and herds. They will besiege their cities and the city walls which the people trust to defend them will fail. Every city that God is about to give them will fall, Moses promises his listeners. It may not seem possible, but the mood darkens further as Moses promises wayward Israel that its besieged people will be forced to eat their own children, describing these cannibalised infants as the fruit of the womb. An otherwise inoffensive father will refuse to give his family a morsel of flesh from the dead child he is devouring, and the gentlest woman will begrudge sharing any of the placenta or meat from her newborn's corpse with her ravenous family. It's hard to imagine a more grisly scene, and it brings to mind the words of Kurtz in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. The horror. The horror. If the law is not followed and God's name is not appropriately revered, Moses tells his people, then all the plagues that affected Egypt will fall on them. Lingering disease and prolonged disaster will beset them, as well as new illnesses and misfortunes, which will afflict them until they are completely annihilated. Despite once being as numerous as the stars in the night sky, their numbers will be dramatically reduced, Moses tells his listeners. All this will be for refusing to follow God, and just as God put them in this land with the intention of prospering, he will just as readily uproot them. The doom continues as Moses reads the fortune of a nation that chooses to reject God. Israel's people will be uprooted from their land and scattered across the earth. They will worship man-made gods which they never knew existed. They will find no rest. They will be anxious, weary with homesickness, and their lives will be shaped by despair, insecurity and dread. They will be so filled with terror that in the morning they will wish it were evening, and vice versa, and their journey will end with a voyage on a slave ship back to Egypt, where they will offer themselves up for sale, but no one will buy them. The writer of Deuteronomy announces that the retelling of the laws by Moses has now finished. He describes these rules as a covenant, a solemn agreement between God and his people. The laws here are seen as a complement to those given at Mount Sinai, and the book describes how Moses gathers everyone together for one final sermon. Whether the three sermons detailed here in this book happen back to back, or with days or weeks between them, is uncertain. It is the content rather than the timeline which the writer sees as important. Israel's leader reminds his people of God's goodness to them in the past, 
rescuing them from Egypt and clothing them and feeding them despite their inability to understand him or provide for themselves. This was all to impress on them that he was God, Moses tells them. He then recaps the more recent defeat of the two kings, Sihon and Og, and how their land here in the Transjordan was assigned to three of Israel's tribes. Moses announces that the men, women and children of Israel and all the foreigners who live with them and work for them in their camp are entering into a new contract which confirms them as God's people. This contract is about to be sealed with a solemn oath, he says. Moses sees today's event as the culmination of the promise which God made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the contract is not only effective with the people here standing before him, but with those who aren't here, a suggestion that this is an agreement which lasts in perpetuity. Moses reminds his people of the, quote, detestable images and idols worshipped by the Egyptians and the tribes which they have already defeated on their journey here, and orders them to flush out anyone who thinks that a spot of idol worship is harmless. Such behaviour is a root that produces bitter poison, he says. The small print of this is not small print at all. In case anyone is still in doubt of the consequences of failing to give God their 100% love and attention, they are warned that their sky will fall in. There is no forgiveness for such a person, the crowd is told. Their land will fail, God's anger will burn against them, and his curses will rain down on them for the rest of their life. Their name will be blotted out, unspeakable shame and humiliation for a family, and their tribe will be singled out for disaster. The generations which follow and visitors from other countries will see only a wasteland, a place where calamity has struck and disease has infected. The entire country will be a burning waste of salt and sulphur, a contaminated expanse of dead earth where no vegetation can survive. Moses likens it to the aftermath of Sodom and Gomorrah and two other towns, Adma and Zeboim. Although Adma and Zeboim are not mentioned in the Genesis account of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, their leaders are clearly in cahoots as the king of Sodom can count on the kings of Adma and Zeboim to accompany him into battle against their enemy, Kedolaoma. You can catch up on this particular adventure in episode 4, The Sister Wife. Moses imagines future generations of Canaanites asking one another how God became so angry with Israel. The answer will be that they abandoned their long-standing agreement with him and turned their backs on him to worship the pantheon of non-gods that were readily available in their new land. For this reason, God uprooted them and threw them out of the fertile country formerly known as the land of milk and honey. It's easy to see how some Bible experts believe that these words are written while the Jews are in exile in Babylon centuries later, their homeland destroyed and their people dispersed. The writer might easily be viewing his current situation as God's punishment for his nation's wholescale adoption of foreign religions, and might explain his emphasis on Moses' warnings at Beth Peor, a kind of told-you-so to future generations. As a conclusion, Moses reflects on how God keeps many things secret, but that his laws are revealed to his people so that they can keep them as their possession forever. The sense is that these codes for life are divine, personal and precious. Genesis 34 
after the dire tribe of horrors that Moses promises will land on Israel if it turns away from God, he offers his people a choice. Israel's leader looks forward to a future where, people being people, the Israelites will have broken every one of God's laws and will have turned to other gods as if there were a sail on. However, in this future, scattered Israel will be brought home to the land promised to their ancestors to worship God, who will ensure that these people thrive even more than their predecessors. According to Moses, God will bring about a change of heart in his people so that they will love him wholeheartedly and live. The curses that have afflicted them will reign on their enemies instead, and God will delight in their success like a proud parent. The caveat is that they must obey all the laws that Moses has shared with them, otherwise the deal is off and the sulphurous rain will fall. The rules aren't hard to follow, Moses tells the assembled masses. It's not like they are up in heaven where someone has to pull off the biblical equivalent of Jack and the Beanstalk to go and get them. They're not a distant sea voyage away either. God's word is right here, he says, and it can be kept in their mouths and hearts where it is easily accessible. The choice the people are given is between life and prosperity or death and destruction. Those who follow God into the promised land will thrive, while those who chase after pagan gods will be destroyed. Moses calls down the sky and the land as his witnesses, and some 3,300 years before Renton utters the words in Irvin Welsh's train spotting, Moses urges his people to choose life. They and their children should live, love God, listen to him and cling on to him. God is their life, he tells them. They must love him and listen to him, and if they do, they will live a long time in their new country. It's been a 40-year journey for Moses. Aside from Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12 spies originally sent to scout out Canaan 38 years earlier, no one else among the two million or so Israelites camped here by the Jordan walked out of Egypt. Israel's leader has faced down repeated rebellions from his own people and has fought a number of battles against enemy tribes. He has lost his sister, his brother and two nephews. He appears to have left his own sons with his wife's family. And despite having been denied access to the promised land himself for a petulant outburst earlier in the journey, he has remained loyal to God and his people. It is an incredible feat of both leadership and endurance. Now, all that remains for Moses to do is hand the leader's baton to Joshua and take his last breaths. Israel must move on without him. Holy Bible Season 5 Finale is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search Holy Bible, W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. If you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star review on whatever channel you listen on, or at the very least, tell your mates. As this is episode 50, I've listed the names of the great and good whose words have helped inspire and inform this podcast. Thank you, all of you. I'm off to drink champagne. Cheers. Cheers.